The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host of today's Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend Dr Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And as usual, Peter has got a thought-provoking topic for us today. The real story of separating myth from reality in eulogies for dictators. So Peter, where would you like to start us off today? What prompted this, Andrew, was uh, the death uh, last week, 17th of June, uh, Kenneth Kahunda, the first president of Zambia, uh, died, and so uh, died aged 97. Uh, So uh, he was born in 1924, and he was dictator of Zambia from 1964 to 1991. And uh, because I was his guest um, as a presidential detainee in Lusaka Central Prison, and because I experienced his hospitality uh, in interrogations and tortures by his secret police, I've got a particular perspective on this uh, first president of Zambia, as I like to call this dictator of a one-party state. But uh, the eulogies coming of this elder statesman, this liberator, this freedom fighter, it sort of reminds one of Justin Trudeau, the uh, worst president in in Canada's history, and his fawning, gushing, unbelievably inappropriate eulogy for Cuba's uh, dictator. You may recall this staggering. Uh, in fact, uh, people uh, wondered if this was parody, but it's actually genuine. So Justin Trudeau, president of Canada, uh, gave this when Fidel Castro, one of the most brutal, long-reigning dictators in history, uh, died. And this was official from the Prime Minister's Office of Canada. Dead serious. is not the Babylon Bee. It is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest-serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century. A legendary revolutionary and orator, Fidel Castro made uh, uh, life in in uh, in the uh, uh, Cuba uh, more rich. He was a he improved the education, healthcare of his island nation, while a controversial figure. Both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognize his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people. 
who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. I know my father was very proud to call him a friend, and I had the opportunity to meet Fidel when my pa father passed away. It was also a real honor to meet his three sons and his brother president, Paul uh, or Raul Castro, during my recent visit to Cuba. On behalf of all Canadians, Sophie and I offer our deepest condolences to the family, friends, and many, many supporters of Mr. Castro. We join the people of Cuba today in mourning the loss of this remarkable leader." Unquote. Now, this is absolutely staggering in its uh, fawning nonsense and gushing garbage. But longer-serving president? Try dictator. In fact, Fidel Castro's daughter said he's not a dictator, he's a tyrant. A dictator uh, is is, an, uh, is actually elected to that role of being a dictator. Uh, he has uh, some grounds. This man is a tyrant. And uh, interesting, the Trudeau family has a long line of fawning for dictators. And so, for example, um, Pierre Trudeau, who was once a, a prime minister of Canada, his son, Alexandra, wrote a fawning happy 80th birthday column in the Toronto Star in praise of Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, praising him as a great adventurer, a great scientific mind, someone whose intellect is one of the most broad and complete that can be found. Fidel Castro, according to Trudeau, is an expert on genetics, on automobile combustion engines, on stock markets, on everything. And we should think of Fidel Castro as the father and the Cubans as his children. <laughs> Can you imagine? And Margaret Trudeau, that's, Fidel, uh, that's actually uh, Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret Trudeau said that the greatest friend of all is Fidel Castro. Unbelievable. But uh, then uh, to see where the Trudeaus stand, that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau of Canada, has this weird fantasy belief that this dictatorship of Red China is efficient on economic and environmental matters. Now, some of the worst environmental abuses in the world is taking place in China. They contribute to most of the world's pollution on every level. And yet he speaks about them being efficient on green environmental issues. And uh, you would think that the environmental practice of China would never be tolerated in, by citizens in any liberal democracy, but they all have seemed to have a soft spot for tyrants and communists, and they've got multiple blind spots on things like democracy and human rights and slavery and you know, extrajudicial killings and massacres and minor things like that, it seems. But the Trudeau family's really got a long love affair with the world's autocrats and tyrants. And when I say long love affair, we, we don't just mean that figuratively. Uh, because, um, well, uh, one can look at the pictures of Margaret Trudeau and Fidel Castro, and it, it looks highly suspicious. But uh, he, just listen to this from Trudeau. Um, uh, this is now the elder Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, who was also prime minister of Canada. He said, when you see mass rallies with Fidel Castro speaking for 90 minutes, you wonder why is there any need for elections at all? Uh, how about that for um, a democratic leader of the free West? saying, you don't need elections in, in Cuba because look how the people will listen to Fidel Castro speaking for 90 minutes. I, I don't think he understands the way one-party dictatorships and communist tyrants work and how you have to be polite and you have to applaud uh, the El Comandante, the dictator, and so on. And so absolutely extraordinary that you've got these Trudeaus who 
express a high level of admiration for Red China. Uh, Justin Trudeau said back in 2013, he's got a high level of admiration for China. Their basic dictatorship allows them to actually turn the economy around. You know, to think that there's people in the West who actually have that kind of mentality. So this actually prompted some hilarious um, actual, uh, what, what do you call them, eulogies. So there's a whole uh, series of memes out there called Trudeau eulogies. So, for example, um, here's a, a Trudeau eulogy. Um, people parroting Justin Trudeau's gushing uh, eulogy for Fidel Castro, one of the worst dictators in history. And so um, <clears throat> uh, these are people saying, uh, so these are hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Joseph Stalin, the, the greatest dictator mass murderer in history, uh, Soviet Union's dictator. Mr. Stalin's greatest achievement was his eradication of obesity in the Ukraine through innovative agricultural reforms. And then uh, you might recall Sar uh, Sauron, who's the ultimate enemy in the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. Let us remember Sauron, whose leadership united the disparate peoples across the lands of Middle-earth in singular purpose. So that's another Justin Trudeau eulogy. Uh, here's another one of Darth Vader, the, the ultimate bad guy in the Star Wars series. While controversial, Darth Vader achieved great heights in space construction and played a formative role in his son's life. Here's another Trudeau eulogy parody. While a controversial figure, General Tojo brought America into World War II and ultimately helped shorten the war. Uh, here's an, another great one about uh, Hannibal the cannibal, Hannibal Lecter. If nothing else can be said for Hannibal Lecter, at least he had a great taste in people. Uh, here's another Trudeau eulogy uh, for Genghis Khan, one of the greatest mass murderers in history. I think uh, under Genghis Khan, the Mongols killed about 12% of the world's population. I offer my condolences to the family of Genghis Khan, a controversial figure, but you created a bond between East and West. You may recall uh, President Snow as the dictator in the Hunger Games. So here's a Trudeau eulogy for President Snow. President Snow was a troubled leader, but one who knew the value of lasting entertainment for his districts. And so it continues. Uh, John Wilkes Booth was the one who shot uh, Abraham Lincoln. So here's John Wilkes Booth was a brilliant revolutionary and actor who leapt to fame after his one-shot performance. Um, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, eulogies. And Jim Jones, you'll recall, here's this cult leader who led hundreds of his followers to drink poison and commit suicide, mass suicide. Um, so Trudeau eulogies. Jim Jones provided shelter and hydration to hundreds of Americans. For that, we remember him fondly. And uh, here's one to uh, Mussolini, uh, Trudeau eulogies. Today we say goodbye to Mr. Mussolini, the former Italian prime minister, best known for his competent train management. And you could continue. There's just, it's beyond ridiculous uh, that we've got so many of these dictators who are eulogized today. And so right now in Africa, we're being deluged with uh, eulogies and praise of the father of republicanism and father of independence and the uh, founding father of Zambia and of this great liberator and this uh, elder statesman of Africa and so on, Kenneth Gawinder. So here are the facts uh, to dispel the myths about Kenneth Gawinder to evaluate his real legacy. Um, Kenneth David Gawinder, the first president of Zambia, 
He died on the 17th of June this year, 2021, aged 97. And because he was Zambia's first president in office from October 1964 to November 1991, many are seeking to evaluate his legacy, or should we rather say uh, whitewash his legacy. Keith Kondo, or KK, as he is generally referred to, was born in Chinsala in northern Rhodesia, what's now Zambia, in 1924. His wife, Betty, married in 1946, died in 2012. They had eight children together. Before entering politics, Kenneth Gondor was a teacher, and he is the youngest of eight children himself in his family. His father was a famous and revered uh, missionary and teacher, uh, Church of Scotland missionary, Reverend David Kohunda, who was trained in Livingstonia in Malawi, what then was Nasaland. And so Kenneth Gondor was brought up uh, in a godly family. But as K.K. wrote in his book, A Humanist in Africa, that he could never agree with the Calvinist convictions of his parents who believed in the depravity of man. K.K. said, I believe in the goodness of man, not the depravity of man. That's interesting because when he became president of Zambia, K.K. worked to promote socialist humanism as the ruling ideology of his country. And he also used terms like Zambian humanism and African socialism. And after protests of corruption and vote rigging in the first elections, 1968, Kenneth Kunda banned all political parties except UNIP, his party, the United National Independence Party. So UNIP was the only party allowed, all other parties were banned. But then a few years later, when there was a breakaway from UNIP by one of his members, Simon Kapwepo, uh, to form the United Progressive Party, Kunda suppressed it and changed the constitution to reduce Zambia officially to a one-party state. Thereafter, Kenneth Kunda was the sole candidate in the future elections and all opposition was eliminated, and a personality cult was built around the dictator, Kenneth Kuhunda. All internal dissension was suppressed, particularly in Western Zambia, what is known today as Lawsiland, which used to be known as Borutsiland. And we've got friends in Borutsiland and have done quite a lot of missionary work there, so I think we need to remember the Borutsi as just some of the victims of, of this um, elder statesman of Africa, Kenneth Kuhunda. The Lawsi king actually requested Britain to make it a protectorate. And this was done in 1890 by Cecil John Rhodes's representatives. And the stipulation was, if the British ever left Northern Rhodesia, they must grant Lawsiland or Barotsiland independence, separate from the rest of the country. So we're happy to be part of a united country, Northern Rhodesia, as long as if the British left, they would be allowed to go back to their nation state, the kingdom of Barotsiland. So the King of the Lawsy was presented a black and gold British Admiral's uniform by King Edward VII in recognition of the treaties that had been signed between the Lawsies and Queen Victoria. Now, uh, this has been done generationally. So every generation, the new king is presented still by the British Admiralty with a black and gold British Admiral's uniform in recognition of that treaty that was made uh, way back in 1890s. And um, a very impressive uh, ceremonies that are held there. And so this British Admiral's uniform is still the uniform of the King of Barotsiland or Lawsiland at special events. And because they are uh, at the source of the Zambezi River, uh, Barotsiland covers that area of, of where the Zambezi River begins. Uh, they have massive amounts of riverboats and the King's uh, large boats has got a huge statue of an elephant on top of it. And uh, he will always wear his British Admiral's uniform as, as 
uh, part of the special ceremonies that they have surrounding this. And, and they're, they're very much a river people in, in many ways. There's lots of tributaries feeding into the, the Zambezi River. And that's one of the greatest rivers in, in uh, the whole of Africa and in the world even. So uh, Barutziland, uh, when independence was approaching in 1964, the breakup of the Central African Federation and Northern Rhodesia was uh, being granted independence, there was immediately uh, the request by the Barutzi, well, on a, the original agreement, we only joined Northern Rhodesia on the condition that we receive independence separate from the rest of the country when, when the British choose to leave. And uh, uh, the sadly, tragically, although the British government was inclined to accept that, uh, Kenneth Coinder just refused. No, it's got to be the whole nation, no uh, and, of course, it's not one nation. There's 78 tribal groups, 78 ethno-linguistic people groups in Zambia. But Kenneth Kunda was very much against what he called tribalism. And uh, he wanted to uh, brutally suppress any dissent from the beginning. Uh, it's it's worth noting that uh, Kenneth Kunda got an excellent education uh, by the Church Central African Presbyterian. It was then known as Church Scotland. Today it's known as Church Central African Presbyterian. And... Uh, uh, he was a teacher like his father was a teacher, uh, even though he wasn't a Christian. And what uh, turned him to politics and turned him uh, to uh, the independence politics was the Second World War. Uh, because he was born 1924, you can imagine he is, uh, a, 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 he is actually a student at university during uh, formative years of the Second World War. And uh, he started to ask the question, as many Africans did, what moral, ethical right do the Europeans have to govern us in Africa when they are committing such heinous atrocities against their own people in Europe during this, this world war and, you know, bombing cities and things like that. How on earth uh, we accepted the British as our rulers because we saw them as morally superior. I mean, they ended slavery. They ended a lot of evil things going on here. They, entered, uh, they ended our inter-tribal genocides and uh, warfare. And so uh, naturally the people in Africa looked to the Europeans, and in the case of Zambia, uh, the British, as uh, um, fitted to rule. But their moral standing and ethical uh, reputation suffered an irreparable damage after the Second World War, because how on earth could people who could bomb cities and uh, uh, be involved in the sort of things that they even knew then, like SOE, the uh, Special Operations Executive, which, which was nothing other than terrorism, modelled on the IRA's terrorist practices against the British. Uh, here, SOE was sent out to set Europe ablaze on Churchill's orders, and the, a lot of this was um, eulogised and praised and celebrated uh, on the big screens. And so Zambians were seeing these uh, regular newsreels, propaganda newsreels coming from Britain during the war, about the war, often celebrating SOE terrorist activities, you know, assassinations and bombs and things like this in civilian centers um, behind the lines. And uh, they looked at this and it gave some people ideas. You know, if if Britain can commit terrorism in France and other places, and uh, then why can't we? And so the whole uh, Second World War brought about an erosion of trust and respect uh, uh, for uh, European leadership in Africa and, and fueled the independence movement, much of which was, of course, being fomented by the communists who at that stage were in alliance with the with the British, with the Americans. So the communists uh, started to use this opportunity to 
conscientize, to use their words, the students in the universities in particular. And Kenneth Koenda came to the point of rejecting his Christian upbringing, embracing socialism, humanism, evolutionism, and embracing communism. So uh, KK was famous uh, for once he came to power, he suppressed the Lawsi, the Barotsi land people, and placed the whole of Western Zambia under martial law. And that basically, the whole of his 26 years of dictatorship, Western Zambia was treated as a martial law subject place where all dissent and freedom of speech was crushed and any kind of uh, protest or uh, attempts to criticize or question the government policies uh, was immediately treated as treason. Well, KK became even more famous for hosting revolutionary guerrilla movements and actively supporting these insurgents aimed at overthrowing virtually all the neighbors of Zambia. Now, Zambia used to be part of the Central African Republic, which was Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, and Nasaland, what today is Malawi. And the Central African Republic was a phenomenal success, uh, outstanding success. Uh, the Kariba Dam, which was one of the first of the great hydroelectric power plants in the world. And uh, operation by 1960, absolutely stunning. It made possible the tremendous advance of agriculture and, and especially of uh, industry throughout Central African Republic, Rhodesia, Zambia, Malawi, um, benefited from receiving effectively not just efficient uh, electricity, but cheap electricity, cheaper than anything ever available before. They could get a kilowatt of electricity for under two cents uh, a kilowatt. So it was phenomenal uh, amount of, of electrical power uh, that they were getting. And uh, Central African Republic was such a success in fact, northern, Z northern Rhodesia, what is today called Zambia, uh, was the richest of the partners in the Central African Federation. Southern Rhodesia was the poor cousin. Southern Rhodesia was mostly agricultural, but northern Rhodesia was a real mineral giant, a mining giant, the copper belt, and so many other things like that. So uh, he had lots of money. In fact, Britain left two billion pounds in gold in the Reserve Bank in uh, Lusaka, uh, at, at independence, and Zambia had um, one quacha equaled one British pound in value. Uh, so they were doing very well economically at independence. But KK, instead of building on this, decided to dissipate it by basically declaring war on every neighbor. He was surrounded by white-ruled countries. There was Portuguese West Africa, Angola, Portuguese East Africa, Mozambique. Well, he supported the guerrilla revolutionary movements, the FNLA, the MPLA, and UNITA targeting Portuguese, West Africa, Angola, Frelimo targeting Portuguese, East Africa, and Mozambique. And he supported ZANU and ZAPU giving them bases, the Zimbabwe African National Union, the Zimbabwe African People's Union of both Mugabe and Nakomo were based in Zambia targeting Rhodesia, SWAPO targeting Southwest Africa, what today is Namibia, and of course the ANC targeting South Africa. So Zambia became a springboard, a launching pad for revolutionary insurgents attacking the neighboring countries. And vast quantities of Soviet weaponry poured into Zambia with red Chinese and Soviet officials and military advisors, and uh, the insurgents were equipped. And of course, this invited preemptive strikes as the Rhodesians and South Africans uh, did strikes into the country and roads and railways and bridges were blown up and uh, there were aerial battles and bombings uh, that took place, uh, which was natural 
when you think Zambia was becoming a rogue state sponsoring terrorism into the neighboring countries, obviously there was going to be some reactions. Incredibly, though, despite Rhodesia uh, being targeted by terrorists uh, from Zambia, they continued to supply uninterrupted electricity throughout the whole war to Zambia. So Zambia was benefiting from Rhodesia's hydroelectric power plant uh, on the southern bank of the Zambezi River at the Kariba Dam, uh, even while they were effectively at war with Rhodesia. Rhodesians were just so principled that they continued to aid Zambia uh, with electricity throughout the time that Zambia was actually waging war against them. Well, one incident that I'm sure most people have forgotten is uh, in, on the 16th of May, 1973, after KK had particularly worked up anti-white hysteria, particularly anti-white Rhodesian hysteria on state radio and TV, ZNBC uh, and ZN uh, TV, Zimbabwe, uh, Zambia National Television, uh, against uh, whipping up the hysteria against the white Rhodesians. Well, Zambian security forces shot two Canadian women dead across the Zambezi River at Victoria Falls. Christine Sinclair, who's 20 years old, and Marion Gerber, 19 years old, both from Ontario, were tourists from Canada, dressed basically in swimsuits, could not have been mistaken for men, could not have been mistaken for their long hair and everything else. They, they plainly were women, they were plainly were tourists, and they were uh, on the banks of the Zambezi River at Victoria Falls, and they were shot dead by the Zambian security forces from across the way. An American was uh, seriously wounded as well in the same attack, um, and uh, uh, but he was taken to hospital and recovered. Incredibly, the, the Canadian government continued to support the terrorists and continued to put sanctions on Rhodesia, even while their own citizens were murdered by Kenneth Gwanda. And yet, Zambian, uh, sorry, Canadian taxpayers were pouring money in uh, to the benefit of Kohunda while he's waging war against Rhodesia and even against Canadian tourists. Kenneth Gwanda received 16 MiG-21 fighter jets, uh, fighter bombers uh, from the Soviet Union at this time, and he pursued a very aggressive foreign policy. He promoted sanctions on Rhodesia, uh, even while receiving electricity from Rhodesia's hydroelectric plant at Kariba. And KK also campaigned for sanctions against South Africa, even while receiving vast benefits from South Africa. South Africa maintained the Zambian railways and the Zambian airways, and uh, migrant workers from Zambia came to South Africa and brought back hundreds of millions of pounds of income for the failing economy of Zambia. And even when Zambians needed snakebite serum, it came from South Africa. All the milli meal that they ate was grown in the Orange Free State. Uh, the, the corn. Kenneth Kunda railed and ranted against South Africa and against anyone who sought to trade with South Africa, even while he was trading with South Africa, by the way. Well, it, this was the height of the Cold War, and Kenneth Kunda maintained open, close friendships with the Marxist dictators like Bronze, Joseph Bronze Tito of Yugoslavia and Nikolai Ceausescu of Romania and Fidel Castro of Cuba and with Leonid Brezhnev of the Soviet Union. And many of the streets of Lusaka were named after famous Marxist dictators, revolutionaries, terrorists, I mean, everything from Ben Bella and Bella Kuhn and Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, uh, you name it, Mao Zedong, uh, Joseph Stalin, they all were honored in the streets' names of Lusaka. So Zambia was really a, a hotbed for Marxist revolution and the communist revolutionary Propaganda was being broadcast from Lusaka, so-called Radio Freedom and so on, which was uh, nothing of the sort, was broadcasting hate and revolution and terrorism. And 
basically, Kenneth was an autocrat, to put it nicely. He was a dictator. He personally appointed the Central Committee of UNIP. The Central Committee in turn nominated the sole candidate for the party presidency. And since all the members of the Central Committee were appointed at the pleasure and discretion of Kenneth Gwanda, he was always the sole candidate. And all dissent was suppressed. The media was nationalized, the industries were nationalized, and the economy collapsed. At independence in Zambia, one quatra equaled one British pound. At the end of Kwanda's reign, one pound equaled about 8,000 quatras. At independence, in 1964, you could buy a car for 140 quatra. One friend of mine bought a car for 140 quatra at Independence 1964. But by the end of Kunda's reign, 1991, a bottle of Coca-Cola could cost you 1,000 quatra, 8,000 quatra even. And so uh, unbelievable destruction of the economy under him. The two billion pounds left in the Reserve Bank at Independence, well, who knows where that went. It wasn't long before the socialist economic policies of Kenneth Kunda had bankrupted the country. And Zambia became dependent on foreign aid and the importation of food. Well, my first exposure to Zambia came on a mission in 1987, when I and three other frontline missionaries were arrested for refusing to pay a bribe at Kazimbulu Ferry. We traveled over potholed roads, which had not been maintained or repaired since independence 23 years earlier. We were imprisoned in filthy cells, crawling with hordes of insects, myriads of cockroaches, and the swarms of mosquitoes soon brought us down with malaria. And it's interesting that Kenneth Gunder believed in the goodness of man, because those who profess belief in the goodness of man can be guilty of great humanity, inhumanity, I'd say. And after sleepless night in filthy cells in Livingston, we were hooded, shackled, dragged at bayonet point, guided with rifle butts the over 580 kilometers to Lusaka, where we were paraded through the streets and thrown into Lusaka Central Prison. Now, this is an interesting analogy contrast with colonial conditions, because the British built Lusaka Central Prison for 80 people. There were around 1,200 crammed in this small prison by Kuhnda's government. They'd crammed 1,200 in a prison designed for 80 people. And when I was imprisoned in, in 1987, it, it didn't look much like how it was when Kuhnda was imprisoned there. Back in 1955, the British government imprisoned Kuhnda for nine months in Lusaka Central Prison. But in 1955, he had a cell of his own with a bed and sheets and desk and chair and couch and gramophone and three cook meals a day brought him. He had electricity, he had plumbing, he had access to a library. Now, when we were incarcerated in the Soccer Central Prison under Kenneth Kunda's African socialism and, sick and socialist humanism, a man who believed in the goodness of man, there was no electricity, there was no plumbing, there was no sanitation. There wasn't a working toilet anywhere in the whole place. Every cell had 55 to 65 prisoners crammed into 25 feet by 20 by 15 feet rooms. There was no airflow. Corrugated iron roofs made the heat stifling. The only ventilation came from one foot square hole in a barred door. There were no beds, there's no furniture. Prisoners simply had to lie on our side, stacked in line like sardines. And people died in the cells and were dragged out in the day. The whole prison was a stinking disease factory and we walked around barefoot cut bleeding feet on place where people spat and everything else. And it's just a disease factory. We were locked in our cells from sunset to sunrise, but we were allowed to walk around a dirty overcrowded yard during the daylight hours. There was one meal a day, which was just starch, kind of porridge, dished up, not on plates. There were no plates. There were no eating utensils, just dished up into your hands and you had to eat like a dog. There was, there was no, 
plates or anything like else like that. There was no protein except for the flies that f fell into the big cooking pot. Well, most of the prisoners were not convicts. Most were remand awaiting trial. Now you could tell because the convicts who've been sentenced in court wear prison uniform. The remand prisoners are still wearing the tattered remains of their civilian clothes. And some claim to be waiting trial since 1984, and even before that. So plainly, you could see most of the people in the Sarkis Center prison had not had their day in court yet. Well, we were placed in cell 11. That's the presidential detainee cell. We were detained at the president's pleasure, without trial, without charge. And in our cell were people from literally all around the world. And it says something about a regime when you meet such nice people in their prisons. There was a tall Muslim from Timbuktu in Mali. Uh, he was a businessman, and uh, so in order to steal everything, got somebody accused of being a spy thrown into the presidential detainee cell. man from Zaire, also accused of being a spy. Another from Kenya, also accused of being a spy. A man from Zimbabwe, also accused of being a spy. A young man from Malawi, accused of spying for South Africa. There's a highly educated engineer who used to be a major in the Zambian army in prison for making an unpatriotic comment saying, Sanctions will hurt Zambia more than South Africa. And so there he was rotting in jail. There was a 62-year-old Indian citizen who's also in detention without trial. He's a father of five. He's in jail in spite of being a millionaire, or maybe because of being a millionaire, because officials in UNIP were greedy for his mining company. So he sat in a presidential detainee cell. And it just reminds you of what the Bible says, condemning the innocent or letting the wicked go, both are hateful to the Lord. Well, there was a young black South African, Isaiah Moyer, who'd been jailed at that stage for 18 months. He was a truck driver. He had a wife and two children, Soweto. Isaiah had been framed by some ANC members, exiles they called them, who owed him money. And rather than paying him back, it seemed to have been easier for them to just accuse Isaiah of being a spy. Well, no evidence was necessary at that time of the one-party dictatorship of Konda, and so Isaiah had been severely tortured at Lilai police training center. He'd been hung upside down with his head in a bucket of water while being sadistically beaten. He had been burned with red hot pokers. His body was covered with sores that swelled up with pus and burst. He had also been electrocuted. And we had good fellowship with this fine Christian. We spent hours each day with him and other members in the prison cell in fervent prayer and with Bible study. Now, we didn't have Bibles. We didn't have books. We didn't have electricity. But it was what we could remember the Bible, what hymns we could remember. And at night, we'd sing Christian hymns together, sometimes for over an hour. And sometimes we'd hear choruses of other cells joining in with amazing grace and other hymns we were singing. And the Lord knows when our spirits are crushed in prison. He knows when we denied the rights he gave us. When justice is perverted in court, he knows. Over the next two weeks that the frontline mission team were incarcerated in this grossly overcrowded, unhygienic, disease factory of Lusaka Central Prison. I went through six intense, excruciating interviews, interrogations by officials of the Zambian Special Branch, military intelligence, and the president's office. But thankfully, prayer and pressure was being mobilized worldwide on our behalf. And over a thousand phone calls were made to the Zambian embassy in Washington, D.C. by concerned supporters of our mission. And representations were made to the Zambian embassy personally by related missions that I'd hosted out here or knew me protesting our detentions. There were over 500 letters sent to the British Foreign Office in London. And because 
uh, my father fought all six years Second World War. I had a British passport by virtue of, of that, even though I'm South African born and raised in Rhodesia. So uh, I'm a dual citizen, I'm South African citizen, and I'm a uh, British passport holder. And so uh, our details were sent to the Prime Minister of Great Britain at that time, Margaret Thatcher, a good friend of ours, who had been in the Rhodesian government, Dennis Walker, ensured that this was put into the hands of, of the Secretary of, uh, of Margaret Thatcher. And so up at Vancouver, the Vancouver Commonwealth Conference was 13th to the 17th of October, 1987. And there the Zambian dictator, Kenneth Gwanda, chairman of the frontline states, as he called it, subjected Margaret Thatcher to haranguing over Britain refusing to place economic sanctions on South Africa. So Margaret Thatcher responded by asking, well, why doesn't Zambia herself place sanctions on South Africa? And KK responded, that would place many people out of work. Exactly, replied Margaret Thatcher. And as South Africa is one of our most important trading partners, many British citizens would be placed out of work if I were to impose sanctions on South Africa, quite aside from the many South Africans themselves who would be placed out of work. Well, Margaret Thatcher then went on to relate how Zambians are dependent on South African maize, mealy meal grown in Orange Free State. Zambian Airways is maintained by South African Airways. Zambian Railways is maintained by South African Railways. South African veterinarians care for Zambia's cattle. And many Zambians are migrant workers in South Africa and a vital part of Zambia's ailing economy. Well, KK then declared that because of South Africa's human rights abuses, Britain must impose sanctions. Now, it was at this point that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher produced our information. Who are you to speak about human rights abuses? You are the unelected dictator of a one-party state. And she challenged Kenneth Gwanda. Four British missionaries are being held without trial as presidential detainees in your overcrowded Lusaka Central Prison, tortured and abused by your own security forces. Well, Kenneth Gwanda was overwhelmed. He was dumbstruck. He was humiliated. He was silenced. It was the knockout punch. Uh, he ordered our immediate release. Get those missionaries out of here, is the way it was described to me. And by 1987, Zambia had the second highest debt of any nation in the world relative to its gross domestic product. Second highest. So they were right at the bottom economically, although they were one of the richest countries at independence, they were now one of the poorest and most dependent on foreign aid. Rising opposition to KK forced them to allow a multi-party election in September 1991. And uh, interesting, in that very year, 1991, uh, he had his lawyer contact me and asked me to come back to Zambia that they could apologize for how badly we'd been treated. I knew why, because um, he is slipping in the polls. He was super unpopular. There were uh, all kinds of protests rising all throughout the country. And, and of course, many of the people were outraged at, at how badly uh, he had treated these four missionaries of Frontline. It, it had been front page newspaper reporting at the time, and it went badly because people didn't believe the propaganda that, you know, these are spies and so on. Our mission is too well respected on the ground throughout Africa. So Kenneth Gunder was in trouble. So he invited me to come back to even be on national TV. And um, <laughs> I responded to his representative saying, I know how this works. Your president needs uh, propaganda uh, to allay opposition. Well, I said, I'm willing to come on these conditions. Uh, I must have the opportunity to public me meetings and churches. They said, no problem. I said, evangelistic crusades. They said, no problem. 
And I said, and I must get back to Lasaka Central Prison. You must allow me to enter the prison. And I cannot go back with empty hands. I must have the permission, not only to speak to them without hindrance, but to be able to bring in aid, food, medicines, uh, soap, uh, salt, um, writing materials, um, medical things, uh, tablets, uh, all these different things that we know that they need, and books and Bibles and so on. And, and finally, after a lot of backwards and forwards, that was agreed. So I came to Zambia early 1991, and I probably helped contribute to the rising opposition to Kohinda because in our public meetings, we made clear how we'd been treated. But the key thing they wanted was me to be on national TV. So I was on national TV, and the mistake they made was it was live. <laughs> it should have been <laughs> recorded from their perspective because when it started out, the interviewer said to me, so, Reverend Hammond, uh, this must be very different for you from your last visit to Zambia. Uh, and uh, I smiled and I took a deep breath because I knew uh, they're going to cut me off as soon as I take a breath. And I said, yes, this is uh, so wonderful to be welcomed as a VIP and to be escorted past customs and security and be allowed the freedom to travel and to see your lovely country and to minister to your people and preach gospel. Because the last time it came, we were jailed for simply refusing to pay a bribe at Cousin Billy Ferry. We were hooded, we were shackled, we were chained, we were dragged uh, from filthy cells, cast into cells covered in human filth. And you could just see the eyes of this interview growing wide and the panic. Um, but uh, the camera was on me. I could see the red light on the camera. It's still on me. So I just carried on speaking about and they were thrown to Lusaka Central Prison without trial, without charge, uh, into a prison that the British built for 80 people. But there were 1,200 people crammed into this prison where, even though the cells were 25 feet by 15 feet, where Kenneth Gund had only been a, a single person in a cell, and now he crams 55 to 65 people in a cell, just 25 feet by 15 feet. There's no running water, there's no sanitation, and I went through a whole thing, and you could just see the blood draining out of the face of this poor interviewer. Shame, I, I hope they didn't get fired. But um, I managed to really go through a whole of the stories of the people tortured, the people abused, the, the, some of the finest people of Zambia in that prison without charge, still remand, and, you know, gave all that sort of thing, uh, sort of without taking a breath. And um, uh, I, I must say uh, the result that, that I heard from this was that outrage against Konda only increased. So his ploy to bring us in to help uh, boost his um, um, <laughs> falling uh, poll support uh, was counterproductive. And so in September 1991, in the first multi-party elections held in Zambia, there was a complete um, stunning, crushing defeat for Kohinda. And despite Kohinda controlling the mass media, despite a massive propaganda campaign, with the opposition parties not having any access to the mass media, Kohinda's unit was delivered a crushing defeat. And the Frederick Chalupa's movement for multi-party democracy, the MMD, won in a landslide with 75% of the vote. And uh, this this is interesting because Frederick Chalupa had also been locked up in the Sanka Central Prison. I hadn't, I don't recall meeting him there, but we were apparently in the prison at the same time. And uh, Frederick Chalupa's uh, number two, the new vice president, General Godfrey Mander, was a friend of ours who we had met as a result of, he was also locked up in Lusaka Central Prison as a presidential detainee. And it was General Godfrey Miyandu who encouraged me to write the book, Biblical Principles for Africa. And since 1991, I've been frequently invited to minister in churches and conferences and on radio and television throughout Zambia. And the transformation of Zambia from Kohunda's socialist dictatorship to a free market, multi-party democracy with freedom of the press and freedom of religion under the MMD, 
Key government was traumatic. And interesting that yesterday's prisoner can be tomorrow's president. That's Africa. And uh, so we were well ensconced. And I became a VIP. I'd just be whisked past customs each time I came to Zambia after that. And just, uh, friend, welcome to State's House. Welcome by the Minister of Defense, Minister of Education, Minister of Home Affairs, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Minister of Information, and uh, we would just be uh, welcomed and uh, the Vice President and all of the different enthusiasm. And we had chances to pray with the President and uh, with the uh, different cabinet ministers. I was invited to preach in army bases, on the radio, on national TV, in schools and colleges and university. Abortion was banned, pornography was prohibited. The Bible returned to school classrooms. Chaplains replaced the commissars in armed forces. National days of prayer were called by the president. National days of repentance. National days of thanksgiving were observed. And so I think at this time, while many are seeking to sing the praise of the previous dictator of Zambia, Kenneth Kunda, some thought needs to be given to the long-suffering people of Zambia who endured 26 years of Kunda's misrule and oppression. And think of the many victims of his autocratic rule. And we should also remember many of the civilians killed by the Marxist revolutionary terrorists hosted and supported by Kenneth Gwanda for the incursions into Angola, Mozambique, Rhodesia, Southwest Africa, South Africa, the shooting down of Rhodesian Viscounts, the civilian airliners, and the cooking and eating of the survivors. That was done by Zapu terrorists hosted from Zambia. And so I would trust at this moment, while we have eulogies for dictators like Kohunda, we should be reminded and we should remind people of their victims. And it's very disrespectful to the victims to eulogize their oppressor and the one who caused so much grief. And this should also remind us everyone has an appointment. And just as Kenneth Gwanda had to answer that appointment, the Bible tells us it is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. And the question is not will you bow to Christ, but when will you bow to Christ? We can bow to Christ Jesus, Savior and Lord today in the day of grace when the gates to salvation are wide open, or we can bow to Christ on the day of judgment when the door to heaven is firmly closed, when the day of grace is ended. But we will bow either to him as Savior and Lord today or as eternal judge then. And so uh, I know Kenneth Gwynne is having to answer for his crimes in heaven, he might have escaped justice on earth, but no one escapes justice in eternity before holy God. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, that is um, um, most encouraging, a story with a happy ending, uh, which we get so few of today. So that's a breath of fresh air when we see what's going on in the world. Um, one thing I wanted to mention to you quickly, I don't know if you're aware, because uh, you talked about Justin Trudeau's um, before we get into that, when I looked this up, I, I was aware of this. People have been talking about it. I think I might have mentioned it on the show. But Murr from Wisconsin, who runs the chat room for ACH, um, she mentioned on a show, I think, with Patrick Slattery and Jeremy from Kentucky yesterday on RBN about the search engine Quant. And she said, that's the only decent one left. That's CWANT.com. Sorry, QWANT.com. QWANT.com. And what I did was I went in there and I just typed in, uh, is Fidel Castro uh, Justin Trudeau's dad? And uh, it came up right at the top. 
Uh, and it's apparently an uncensored sort of search engine. And I also typed in just Andrew Carrington. I didn't put Hitchcock. And I was the third result. I went to my website. And then um, I did that in Google. And I wasn't even on the front page. So I've only just looked at it literally in the last hour. So folks have a play with that. I used to recommend webcrawler.com. But I found that that's not been so good of late. So quant qwant.com search engine give it a go and i'll give you an update uh, next week when i've been using it for a while so anyway then i put this search in i've got uh, an article from john b wells news.com a site i haven't heard of but it looks quite interesting may the 11 2021 of course fidel castro is justin trudeau's dad nobody has debunked anything and he writes in the age of sloppy journalism, few authors are sloppier than those who claim they debunk the story that Phil Del Castro is Justin Trudeau's biological father. They recite the Canadian government's official travel dates to Cuba and painfully avoid the Trudeau's extensive personal trip to the Caribbean in spring 1971. It is a fact the Trudeaus were in the Caribbean in spring 1971. It is a fact they adored Castro. It is a fact the Trudeaus were swingers. That is what you need to know. First, Margaret Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau and Fidel Castro were all notoriously sexually promiscuous. Margaret Trudeau was a partier who unquestionably had sex with men while married to Pierre. Nobody knows if Pierre objected. They met when he was 48 and she was 18. They got married when he was 53 and she was 23. Their marriage surprised Canada because Pierre had been a lifelong playboy with no wife or children. He would be turning 60 when she was barely out of her 20s. And it goes on. So, um, Peter, have you heard that story? Of uh, They certainly look similar, of Fidel Castro being Justin Trudeau's biological father. Oh, yes. No, I think uh, everyone we know who knows anything about Cuba takes that as um, a fact. And you just need to uh, look at the pictures at different ages, uh, comparative ages of Fidel Castro and Justin Trudeau. And you can see immediately the obvious resemblance. And then if you compare Justin Trudeau to his father, well, um, you don't see the resemblance there. I mean, Pierre Trudeau, that is. So Pierre Trudeau was five foot eight inches, uh, whereas Justin Trudeau is six foot two inches, and Fidel Castro is six foot three inches. So it's an interesting thing that Justin Trudeau takes his height. Uh, it's closer to that of Fidel Castro than uh, dramatically more than that of Pierre Trudeau. But what you really need to see is the pictures, which are easily accessible on the internet, of um, Trudeau's mother, that's Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret, um, being received in uh, Havana by Fidel Castro. And there's a picture of Margaret looking adoringly up uh, on Fidel while her arms are hanging around him. And he's lifting up Justin Trudeau as a little baby with the most adoring face of what seems to be a proud father. And there's the Cuban army lined up and there's the official Canadian uh, plane behind. And uh, it's a state event. And he went to receive Margaret Trudeau. And I, I don't know how many other people's babies he uh, uh, handled and walked around with and so on. And you can see the uh, picture of um, there's the Trudeau standing at the foot of the steps of the Canadian uh, Prime Minister's uh, jet. And... Uh, there's Fidel saluting, and there's Pierre and Margaret Trudeau and baby Justin, uh, all part of the uh, salute uh, in front of the revolutionary forces of Cuba. It just looks awfully suspicious. At any rate, all you got to do is look at the pictures and decide for yourself. 
Thank you, Peter. And uh, folks, uh, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but Peter's going to be busy for the next few weeks and he won't be back until five weeks from today. So it's been um, tough to... I know many of you uh, regard Peter as your favourite guest on this programme. He certainly uh, makes wonderful contributions, which is why I'm delighted to have him on every week. But we all have other things that we have to do in life. So I've worked uh, to get some other guests in for the time that Peter is away that uh, are names that you'll be familiar with. Uh, we can't replace Peter while he's away, but I'm sure that you will enjoy what I've got coming up for the next four weeks before Peter returns. But let's find out from Peter what he's going to be doing in this time. Peter, over to you. Yes, well, actually, we're heading into our busiest time of the year, the Great Commission course. Now, as a mission, Frontline Fellowship's been hosting these Great Commission courses for the last 23 years, and I'm fully involved. And when we speak about the Great Commission course, it's a boots-on-the-ground, intense uh, missionary training experience. And this is the essential uh, training orientation, selection, and training course for people when join our mission. But people from all over the world come just for or orientation and, and training in cross-cultural missions. This is not a seminar. This is not a conference. This is a full experience from six in the morning PT through to late-night hikes up and over the mountain. Uh, we are busy from six... Uh, in the morning till midnight each day. And I'm fully involved because as a missionary leader, I'm convinced we must lead from the front. We must lead by example. And uh, so I'm part of every hike and I'm part of the mountain climbs. And so it involves daily practicals and outreaches. And so it's so intense. I just can't uh, accept any radio interviews during that time because I put all my heart and soul into uh, this program. And it's, it's an experience because we stretch people's minds and their muscles. And certainly the vision. And uh, Cape Town's a great place to do it. We've got lovely mountains around. We've got forest. And it involves all sorts of things from Bible smuggling ops, where we uh, simulate a smuggling. So we've got hunter teams. And we've got, uh, which my sons are often part of because they know the forest so well. And uh, on the slopes of the mountain, we've got smuggling teams. So uh, the people will have backpacks of Arabic scriptures in the backpacks that must not get wet. This is our winter. This is intense cold uh, and uh, river crossings and uh, escape and evasion and so on. And so this is part of, uh, it's a fun part of the year, but it's intense. And at the end of it, everyone is thoroughly exhausted. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating, Peter. And I hope one of these days I can join you on that, as I'm sure many of the audience would like to also. But before we go, can you please uh, let the audience know how they can support your work, your website, and how they can get in contact with you? Thank you. Yes, actually, we really do need support and we need prayer. Um, it's, it's been a rough time, obviously, with the lockdowns. It's hurt everyone and without getting to out to conferences and uh, with book sales and the interview. Uh, the internet not being what I should say, the postal service not being what it should be. Uh, we are really struggling uh, on every level when we just have major missions and activities coming. Uh, so uh, Frontline's web is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontlinemissionsa.org. And you can email me, peter at frontline.org.za or peter at frontline.org.za, the way the Americans would pronounce Z. And so that's our email. Uh, you can also find me, of course, on social media, Facebook, both Peter Hammond and uh, Frontline Fellowship. Thank you so much, Andrew. 
Thank you so much, Peter. And the chat room that I mentioned earlier, folks, if you go to andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com and just click on the most recent show with Paul English, then the link to that is in there. I don't want to put it in here because we've got so many links in the show with Peter and I want to to drive the traffic over to his site. So, folks, uh, I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. Please remember him and his mission in your prayers at this critical time of the year. You have been listening to the real story of separating myth from reality in eulogies for dictators. I want to thank you all for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.